0: pleasure to introduce today's expert, Jennifer Engel fisher Ms. Engel fisher is the Associate Director of the Weinfeld Education Group. She serves as an educational consultant primarily focusing on the elementary to high school years. She oversees educational consultants in the Weinfeld Education Group and provides training to consultants, teachers, and parents on the special education process, including crafting IEPs. Ms. Angle Fisher is also responsible for their advocacy division, which involves ongoing training of 13 advocates. She has co-authored two books, Take Control of Asperger's Syndrome, The Official Strategy Guide for Teens with Asperger Syndrome, and Nonverbal Learning Disorders and Take Control of Dyslexia and Other Reading Difficulties. She is also a contributing author to School Success for, children, for Kids with ADHD. She is presented to parent groups on a variety of topics such as crafting IEPs, the IEP process, reading methodologies, and behavioral management. Again we are very excited and very pleased to introduce Jennifer Engel Fisher.
1: Welcome to this webinar on identifying meaningful and appropriate accommodations for your child with ADHD. So the learning objectives for today, um, by the end of this webinar you'll be able to identify your child's Areas of need that require accommodations. You'll identify accommodations based on an area of need in general. You'll describe how to select an accommodation based on your child's individual needs. Um, And one thing we are going to talk about is that not every accommodation is for every child. We're going to explain how to monitor your child's progress with the given accommodations. And we're going to also discuss some tips and tricks to increase your child's self-advocacy. Our children have all of this energy and want to do well and want to please, but their focus tends to be more limited or hyper. They hyperfocus or they focus on everything, so then they get nothing accomplished. So before we take a look at specific accommodations, it's important to take a step back and look at the more global areas of impact. What areas um, are impacting my child's ability to access curriculum? And that includes academic, social, and behavioral. First, let's talk about academic. Academics is the most common form of accommodations on any 504 or IEP. And it's also the accommodation section that parents and schools tend to spend the most time on because of the equating academics to grades and and attention. So let's look at some of the different uh, issues or deficits that children with ADHD have academically. Difficulty with task initiation, maintaining a task, and completing. That's specifically important because we want to look at the percentage of tasks given versus the percentage of tasks that are completed. As a parent, it's important to know that data and also determine if that data is different in math class versus reading versus writing. You want to see if there's a pattern because sometimes it's not just the ADHD and you want to make sure that you are looking at all the data. We also want to make sure that you're utilizing working memory and accessing recall. Working memory uh, on the WISC or any kind of assessment for children, students with ADHD typically is lower. The difficulties with planning, organizing, and prioritizing, which go along with executive functioning deficits difficulty with following multiple-step directions, problems, and tasks, long-term projects, and test-taking. And those are just a few examples. We could probably write an entire book of academic um, concerns that arise due to an ADHD child in the classroom. Then we have the behavioral side. And when we look at behaviors, it's important to know that when you're attending meetings, to focus on your child's behavior and not how your child's behavior is impacting other students. And that is very important when you're developing an IEP or 504 when you're looking at accommodations because if you're looking at your child's behavior, whether it's interrupting, whether it's standing up and walking around the room on how it's impacting the other students, the focus is not your child. So following school and classroom routines can be difficult Self regulation, self monitoring, difficulty controlling their impulses, which also goes under self regulation. It's difficult for them, they're, they're so in the moment and they're not thinking two and three steps ahead. And if they are, they just want to get to that third step and not do what they need to do in the moment. And also personal management, time, organization, and planning in general. The last global component is the social piece. This actually includes nonverbal communication, which sometimes is students with ADHD is very hard to read. It's very hard for them to read other peers or adults' nonverbal communication because they're so caught up, again, in the moment that they're not looking for those social cues. Difficult, again, with impulse control. Turn-taking and social reciprocity is hard, again, typically because they're on they're one of two things. They're either on the next thought that they have to get out, or if you're of ADHD primarily an attentive type, they may not even be focused or engaged in the current conversation in order to respond. Difficulty with personal space, verbal fluency, and again, it's because being ready to say the next thing they want to say their expressive language can sound disjointed. Um, A word that I like to use is called dysnomia. It's like the tip of your tongue syndrome. And demonstrating active listening skills because listening is a very, very hard skill for some students with ADHD. So some accommodation avenues that we want to look at are instructional supports, program modifications, and when it says CCS, still apply, What I'm referring to are common core standards or the common core state standards. And that's important to note because typically when you're using the word modifications, what you're doing is you're changing the skill being taught. So you're spiraling it down to maybe a different grade level, and students who are diploma-bound do not have a quote-unquote modified curriculum. We also will, the other category is social behavioral supports, physical environmental, and school personnel and parent supports, which many parents don't know can be included in an IEP and a 504 plan. So let's start with presentation accommodations. And these are just samples. They are not all inclusive. I'm sure everybody here has many more that they have in their bag um, of tricks. These are just some examples. There's books on tape, recorded books, visual cues, which are prompting to task, for example, notes and outlines and instructions, and text-to-speech. I particularly like notes and outlines and instructions for students in middle or high school versus elementary school, because the focus of elementary school is really geared more towards discussion-based learning and group learning. And when students are required to take notes in elementary school, they are not required to take them as in-depth as they are in middle and high school. So this accommodation I see more for middle and high school students. One piece of this accommodation that is important to mention is that the notes should, can be provided to the student prior to the lesson. And that helped with pre-teaching, of vocabulary, of concept, et cetera, it also helps you as the parent know what's going on in the classroom, to be quite honest. It's very hard for students with ADHD to multitask in the classroom. And if you provide a child with notes or an outline of the upcoming lesson or presentation, the students are able to take notes as as the teacher goes, but not hyper-focus on the notes and still be able to pay attention to the lesson. We also have response accommodations. Um, that is how the student is going to get out their answers. So there's a scribe, which is not the most effective strategy for students with ADHD, to be quite honest with you, unless there's also dysgraphia involved or another sort of written language output disability. The reason scribe is in here for ADHD is because sometimes the student's attention is so um, needs to be so focused on the task that they need a person sitting next to them in order to get their what's in their head out. And that's when the scribe would be appropriate. The electronic note takers also, it's also an attention-getting device. So it doesn't always have to be for a learning disability. Speech-to-text. Responding on test booklet is a very, very important combination, especially when you're getting into high school. For students with ADHD. A lot of students have difficulty with visual tracking and attention. So, when they're taking tests that require them to write choose A, B, C or D and then transfer that information onto a Scantron, they end up missing a lot of questions. That's very important. Now, of course, we all know we've on we most testing has gone away from Scantrons, but they're still there especially when you're taking the SSATs or PSATs or a practice ACT test, it's easier for the student to circle it in the test booklet. Now, monitor test response is used both in the classroom for instructional and as well as some standardized tests. I've been in education for over 20 years, and I find that every single year there are students with ADHD that skip problems in a test, or they don't finish an entire sentence and they just go on to the next page. And once you flip a page, it's very rare for the student to flip back because of, you know, they need to check their work. But we all know, given this population, the sooner they get it done, the better. It's like the race to the finish. So it is important to have the monitor test response accommodation if you have a child who does rush to the end of a test. And the teacher is able to then just do a visual gesture like point, and that would prompt the student to go back. As many ways as we can to help a student slow down, we need to provide to them. So the next section, the third one is scheduling and timing accommodations. Now I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about extended time. I've attended over a 1,000 IEP meetings. And I will tell you, the majority of the parents in schools that I work with always have extended time checked off, even when the child is in second and third grade. I would caution parents, and you speak with this at schools, to really know your child and say, does my child really need that extended time? I would look at their processing speed score. I would look at the data from the classroom how much time is my child spending on a math test versus how much time are they given the math test, and are they passing, are they getting A's and B's, etc.? Because for standardized tests, if you have extended time on your IEP or 504, they're required to keep your child in that room for the entire time. So when you have a child who is fidgety and likes to move and when they're done with a test, likes to get up and leave, extended time if you know it's not needed, may not be a good accommodation to add to an IEP because if you have if the test has one hour and there's extended time, so they get an hour and a half, but they finish in 45 minutes, they must sit there for the rest of those 45 minutes. So it's just something to think about. Then there's multiple and frequent breaks, which is a very important accommodation for this population, and it does require you to then have extended time, because when you take breaks, it doesn't necessarily mean that the time stops before and after the break. And also, changing the schedule of order of activities within one day or over multiple days. Is your child one who is stronger in the morning versus the afternoon for any mitigating reasons, such as medication? Do they have more energy in the morning in general? Do they fatigue? easier than other students. Those are all things to discuss at a 504 meeting or an IEPT meeting. And then we move on to the setting. Reduced distractions to the student is typically when they remove the student from their general education environment into a special education or self-contained environment. Reducing distractions to the student is also typically for students that receive extended time. Now. When you get to the next accommodation, which is reduced distractions to other students, I commonly hear from parents and from parents, why are you doing that? My child's not a distraction. I don't know why you're removing him or her because you think they're a distraction. What that really means is is that the accommodations that your child requires to take this assessment and in his IEP, those accommodations would distract other students, such as somebody reading to them aloud, such as the scribe, etc. That's the definition of, of reducing distractions to other students. Changing location can be very important for those who need access to more physical, uh, a larger space to get their energy out, let's say. They may not want to sit at a desk or may not be able to sit at a desk. They need to may sit on an exercise ball. They may need to use a standing desk. The change of location is very appropriate for those types of students. And it really goes to show that you need to make sure the school is having a high expectation for your child and that these accommodations that you're putting into place will not change the way they look at your child or not change what they're expecting of your child as far as output and who your child is. So let's talk about some considerations when we're talking about accommodations. We have the instructional accommodations, and people talk about testing accommodations. So it's very common for parents to call me up and say, I want my child to get a 504 plan. He's in 10th grade, and he needs to get extra time for the SATs. It's a problem, because one is the college boards, and need to see years and years of a pattern of the accommodations being implemented in the school successfully, and also the student using the accommodations because that is a question on the application. So any accommodation you have in the IEP or 504 has to be for instructional and testing. So if they're not using it in the classroom, you can't get it for a standardized test. And that's very important to know. On the same token, is if you have it as a testing accommodation, you need to know that your child is going to have to use that accommodation in the classroom. So again, it's very common for me to hear that, well, my child doesn't want to get, my child doesn't want to get pulled out of the classroom, but I want him pulled out for this test. If your child is not doing it in an instructional setting, then school's not going to be allowed to do it in the testing setting. And then there are some students who really just don't want to get pulled out of the classroom, and we need to make sure that they have buy-in as well. So the determination for qualifying for accommodations is typically disability specific or area of impact specific. So those parents on the webinar who have children with an IEP know that there is something called an impact statement or area of impact, where it lists the specific areas that are the goal areas that are impacting your students' availability to access the general education curriculum any realm in that impact statement you can use for an accommodation. So for an example, math calculator. If your child does not have math or even executive functioning on their IEP but has weak processing skills and has processing as an area of impact, then that could be a qualifier for, calcul- for a calculator, but not always. So it is important to know that just because you have an IEP or a 504 plan, that not all accommodations will be approved or agreed upon by the team. And that is why. The other piece that's very important to know is that accommodations that are trialed, that are, I'm sorry, that are not trialed may not be approved for the IAP or 504 plan. So unfortunately, I can't hear you, but I'm going to let you know that I attend many meetings where as the consultant, I say I really want the child to have a personal checklist of tasks they need to complete within a predetermined period of time. And the school team says, well, we have to trial that first. And they're correct. We shouldn't put anything in an IEP or a 504 plan that hasn't been trialed and used successfully. Because the more you have in an IEP does not mean the better. So. You've heard me use a lot of the terminology of accommodations, but it's not just accommodations. There's also modifications, which is when you adjust the, adjust to the assignment or test and it changes the standard, and that's typically for students who are non-diploma bound. But there's another piece from IDEA called Supplementary Aids and Services. And this is really, in my opinion, the meat of the IEP. The accommodations are the accommodations. They're predetermined by the state that you live in based on IDEA. And there is some flexibility, but not much, especially with the PARC exam. But the supplementary agent services are used also both instructionally and for assessments are really where you can tailor it specifically for your child. And so it's very important to pick exactly the right ones. Because again, if you have an IEP that has 30 supplementary aids and services, how is that going to benefit your child? So some examples of the supplementary services sections, just like we had sections and categories under the accommodations, are instructional, program modifications, social-emotional, physical-environmental, and school personnel and parent supports. The goal of this webinar is to sh- for you to learn and to identify what possible supplementary aids and services are out. What is out there, and do they fit my child? And if so, how can we tailor it to fit my child? So, for example, does the child need to provide alternative ways to demonstrate learning in math class, or is it just during writing? And if so, what is the best mode for that to happen? So, I would possibly put, for example, creating a poster versus writing an essay, if that works for your child. So I would be specific. Student to email homework assignments to the teacher. This is a huge one, especially when you get into the upper-middle grades and the high school grades. It's interesting, even though it's not as big in elementary school, I do have Certain students that at that young age have difficulty remembering their homework, and it's amazing how it goes into their backpack at school. It goes straight from the school to the bus, the parent or caregiver is picking them up from the bus, and it's not there. So, we want to make sure that that gets home and that not just the student to email homework to the teacher, you can actually put in the IEP that the parents will receive. Emails the homework electronically as well. That is an option. Seating next to the instructional area is another one that you can tailor, and I would recommend tailoring it because a lot of people just put preferential seating. Now you can put preferential seating, but what does that mean? For me, preferential seating is the front of the room, with you know, with in a quiet room, looking directly at the teacher. But for Another child, John, who's in fifth grade, he needs more space to move. He needs to walk around while he's learning. So sitting next to the instructional area is not appropriate. He needs an area to move. So here are just some more examples, and I'm going to highlight the ones that I feel are important. One is use of a self-monitoring system. A lot of the behaviors we talked about earlier including calling out, interrupting, uh, impulse control. A lot of our children are not aware they're doing it. So teaching them how to use a self-monitoring system, teaching them how to identify when they are calling out, when they are interrupting and keeping a tracking system, and then incorporating that into a positive behavior system will improve their independent skills as they go on and on and on in life and in school. This requires what I, it's DI and it's direct instruction. A teacher or adult needs to teach the student how to use a self monitoring system as well as how to identify when they're having these behaviors. This can be embedded in both an IEP and a 504. And if you have an IEP, you can actually create an entire goal about self regulation and self monitoring. Another important piece, and this is especially in the younger years in elementary school, is a checklist for daily routines and tasks because you want to go from the external to to more intrinsic. So using verbal and visual checklists to take off my code, pay for lunch, all of those routines, so then they become rote. Now, this is one that I I really like for students with with this population is assigning a student a specific role during group work. We all know that the majority of students with ADHD, especially combined or hyperactive, like to talk. And so we don't want to put them in a group setting where they are not allowed to talk, such as being the recorder in a group or the note taker. So it's important for the teacher to preassign certain roles based on a child's needs, strengths, and disability. Instead of just randomly pick picking names out and assigning roles that way. Here's some more. Um, being going back to more old school, a carol is a great, great, great place for students to get their work done. In classrooms, you don't really see them anymore because it's again it's something that happened more in the 70s and the 80s but they're bringing them back, especially when parents ask for them, because the child is still able to be in the classroom, but th- with less distractions. The other piece to this that I like is that I see in a lot of IEPs that I read before we revise them um, to, you know, student will repeat directions back to the teacher. Well, I can repeat directions back, you can repeat directions back, but that's not checking that we understanding checking that we understand what's expected of us. So asking the student to rephrase the directions or the concepts back to the teacher is a better way to check for understanding with this population. Because not only are you making sure they heard what the teacher was asking them to do, but they're actually processing it to be able to restate it using different words. It's very effective. Use of concept maps, like Kidspiration or Inspiration, visual organizers, graphic organizers, but they're online, are very helpful, as well as an extra set of books for home, especially for those students who tend to leave their materials at school. So this last slide regarding examples um, are study guides. When the student gets to upper, middle, and high school, they're going to get lengthier tests that are Summative. Now we're going to test an entire unit. And it's very hard for students to with ADHD to focus on what's important and what's not important. So if the teacher is able to create a study guide for the student before the exam, it helps the student narrow down the focus. Graph paper for math work, so they pay attention to the lines and putting their numbers in order. In elementary school, really less in middle and high school due to children maybe feeling stigmatized or they don't want to look different, is getting the agenda book signed. And it's not just to get it signed for for no reason. What I add to that is teacher to sign agenda book daily and check for um, clarity and accuracy. So I have a lot of students with ADHD that. The parents tell me, well, they come home and I'm sure what what they wrote. They think they can read, but they come home and can't read it because they're writing very quickly and they're racing to the next task. Visual and verbal written direction, visual and written directions are super important because in classrooms there is a lot of lecture, especially when you get to the middle and high school, and. You have a child with ADHD who may have primarily an attentive type or even combined type, that they're either on the next step or they're looking around the room or thinking about something else. So having that in front of them is very helpful. Specifically, I did a classroom observation last week where the teacher read an article aloud. The students were to take notes on Post-it notes on the important details from the article. The student I was observing had a very difficult time with this task because they were required to listen, and which their attention faded in and out, but then also to identify the important pieces to then write down. So there were multiple processes involved. Instead, what I recommended was that this student, and I actually thought this would benefit all students, should have the article in front of them and underline or highlight the important pieces after the teacher stopped to check for understanding. That would have been a better way to approach that for a child with ADHD. And the last one is what I started out with is a personal checklist of tasks to complete within a predetermined period of time. So there's no such thing as one task, and there's no such thing as a task that only has one step, unless the teacher breaks it down that way. Even when you think about addition, with regrouping, there's multiple steps involved. So having a checklist of a skill, such as addition with regrouping, as well as a checklist of a larger task, such as a long-term writing assignment and essay, is super important. And the other piece to this is, when you get into high school especially, is adding interim due dates. So the child has some accountability and not waiting to the last minute to get everything done the night before. So how do we request accommodations? How do you, as parents, request them without, without the school feeling like, A, you're telling them what to do, and instead looking at this, I'm their parent. We're partners in this. This is what I feel my child needs. So these are some recommendations for you to go to the school with. First, you should create a list of accommodations or supplementary aids and services that are proven successful at home with a tutor at an after-school club. If you know what's working outside of school, then you should provide that information to a school, to the school. You should supply school the list that we just discussed at least two weeks prior to your meeting and always in writing, because like I tell every single parent I work with, if it's not in writing, it never happened. And request a trial of that what you're requesting of the accommodation and supplementary aid and service. So then when you get to either an IEP meeting or a 504 meeting, there is documentation that you've made that request and that you've asked them to trial. Now, two weeks is not a long time to trial, and they may come back and say, you know, we need another month, which is great. At least they're trialing it, and it's a start. Just make sure that all of the notes from those meetings you have have that documentation. And when you get to your meeting, request the data, if it's available, to support the need for each accommodation. Requesting accommodations and supplementary aids and services are best done in a more formal setting, like within the IEP process, within an EMT or MDT process, because there's that documentation. And in a year from now, and you're still asking for, let's say, the teacher to sign the agenda book, you'll have the data to show in the notes that you had requested it a year earlier. This is an important piece. A letter from your physician or therapist providing recommendations for accommodations does not guarantee the school will accept them. And that's the same for psychoeducational or neuropsychological assessment reports. So we all have amazing psychoeducational and neuropsychological assessments for our child. If not, we may have a letter from our physician or a psychopharmacologist or a psychiatrist that says, you know, your child has ADHD and and needs X, Y, and Z at school. But the school is not legally required to implement those recommendations if they don't agree with them or they haven't been trialed, and, and they need to collect their own data, which is very frustrating as a parent, because you know that it's going to work. You've hired these experts that are also saying they're going to work. So it, is, it can be very frustrating, which is why that documentation is very important. So one of the biggest uh, concerns I hear from parents when they first call our group is, how do I know that the teachers are actually using the accom- you know, giving him the accommodations or supplementary aids and services? I have no idea what goes on in the classroom. Well, you're right, we don't. The only accommodations or supplementary aids and services as parents that you can be aware of are documents and worksheets that come home. Or if your child is verbal or a child can tell you, I used to extend time today, or I only have to do 10 math problems for homework instead of 20. That's it. That's the only way to monitor it. So these are some, uh, I guess, tricks or tips to help you get more information both out of your child and the school. First, make copies of assignments that show and also do not show the accommodations and track the grades and progress on those types of assignments. Ask to look at your child's morning journal or agenda book, things that they... Their morning journal has... It's like a diamond when you go into an IEP meeting and you ask the teacher for, to see the journal because it's all unedited and you can really get a true feeling of how your child's uh, impromptu writing is. You can ask if your child, if she's getting X, Y, and Z, meaning the specific accommodation. Also, there are some schools who do this, and it's extremely impressive that they keep a grid of their child's accommodations. And please note, I also mean supplementary aids and services when I'm talking about implementation and effectiveness. And then they check off each one the student uses when they see it being used on the assignment. You could do the same thing at home, or if you have a a child in middle or high school that's comfortable and secure enough to do that, they can also also keep track themselves. This is my favorite one. Retype your list, what your child's entitled to, of accommodations and supplementary aids and services in small font. And tape it into the inside of each of their notebooks, and just the teacher, if they know it's there, can point to it as a verbal, just as a as a visual prompt, so they can look, and that'll help with their self-advocacy. And at your next school meeting, revisit the accommodations, as some of them may not be necessary at the time. It's a fluid document, both an IEP or a 504. You don't have to wait a year to come back to review it. You can review it every month if you'd like to. Now, you may not be the favorite parents of the school if you want to look at it every month, but it's your legal right. So having too many supplementary aids and services, like we talked a little bit about before, you know, raises the issue of learned helplessness and enabling versus empowering. How many supports are we going to give the, our children that are what's the balance between giving them enough supports yet letting them to learn how to be independent. And it is a balance. So again, more is not always better. So here are some self-advocacy tips and tricks. I'm connecting it to the slide before with the list of accommodations and supplementary aids and services that a child can keep in their book to refer to. But also, self-advocacy may require direct specialized instruction. And that skill needs to be embedded in authentic settings, just like there's social skills, direct instruction, and then it's embedded in social thinking and executive functioning curriculums. The same with self-advocacy. So if you have an IEP for your child, there are a lot of IEPs that have self-advocacy as its own goal area, which means it would also be in the area of impact. You could also address self-advocacy as an accommodation. It may not be as effective, but it's there. And the, I labeled the, I listed the two here that we just discussed. We want to empower the student to use their accommodations and know and recognize what works for them. Because as they get older, they're going to be attending these IEP and 504 meetings. And we don't want to put a child in a position of being sitting at a meeting and saying, I don't want any of my accommodations, because they don't want to. look or feel different. We want them to understand that these accommodations they need in order to be more independent in school, in order to be more successful, and in order to feel better about themselves. We want to make sure confidence stays high, and that will happen if their self-advocacy improves. We have a question
0: from one of our participants. She says that her son has ADHD and anxiety, and she was wondering how does she know whether to ask for an IEP or a 504 when asking for an evaluation with the school?
1: That is an excellent question. So without knowing your son or reviewing notes or records, I will tell you what you're looking for is, the question you want to answer is this. Does my child need direct specialized instruction in order to access the curriculum? So do they need specific interventions in all areas, not just academic, which the school tends to focus on? Social, um, emotional, uh, communication, speech, language. So it's, it's yes, your child has ADHD, and yes, they have anxiety, but how is that impacting them at school? If you're saying that, yes, I feel like my child needs direct specialized instruction, then you would request an IEP meeting, which also starts a legal timeline and offers you more procedural safeguards. I typically recommend starting that direction for parents. If you go to a 504 meeting, you might not, they won't, they won't assess during that process the way they will during, an I, during the IEP process.
0: Well our next question uh, comes from Marcy and she has a son in high school and she was wondering, she's heard something about having um, an older student accompany her to the IEP meeting and she was wondering should she have her high school student come in, how should she work that with the teachers?
1: Well. High school students and even middle school students are typically invited to IEP meetings. It depends on the parent whether or not they feel comfortable having their child there. Unfortunately, IEP meetings tend to be pretty negative sometimes, especially when teams focus on all of the things the child cannot do. That happens to be a little bit of a pet peeve because an IEP should be a strength-based IEP, not just focusing on the areas of weakness. That said, we need to identify those areas in order to target them and provide the child with direct specialized instruction, the appropriate accommodations, and supplementary aids and services. So sometimes I recommend the child joining the meeting after the teacher reports in order for them to listen to talk about goals, the goals part of the IEP, as well as um, let them make a personal statement A really useful tip is that if your child is going to attend and I'm sure they'll be asked to speak, that you go over with them before the meeting. The current accommodations and supplementary aids and services to make sure that you know what they're going to say because they will be asked if they use them or if they think they help them.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Well, our next question now, uh, we have a question relating to using technology as an assistance in the classroom one of our parents uh, would like to have her son be able to bring in a tablet to use that um, as a part of his IEP how do you how does a parent go about having technology included into an IEP or a 504 that's a
1: very interesting question because it I will tell you it varies age by age, grade by grade. So for example, almost every middle school and high school student, the schools have Chromebooks for them to use. They have that accessibility. Tablets are a little bit of a different story than Chromebooks or computers. Personally, the avenue that I use with my clients to get a tablet or something like that in the classroom, if we feel like it will be effective, and if it's proven to be effective, is we call an IEP meeting, and again, we go over the data. Every county and state has an assistive technology division where you can request at an IEP meeting or a 504 meeting, because it's not a special education piece, for an assistive technology consult. So somebody would come in from that division, an expert, and it's typically um, an occupational therapist or a speech therapist that has a dual uh, degree, and they will review your child's records and the confidential. They will talk to the teacher, they will observe your child and then give the teachers and the school feedback on some assistive technology that could help. So, I'll give you a perfect example and I'm not getting paid by this app, I promise, but there's this app called um, Snaptype and you use a, it can only be accessed through a, a tablet or an iPhone and you take a picture of a worksheet and you can make the worksheet larger or smaller after you take a picture, and when you push the space that you need to write in, a keyboard comes up for you to type, and then you can make your typing smaller or larger. It's a fabulous app. And unfortunately, schools are not... All, every child at every school doesn't have their tablet, so you do have to go to the IEP team to request bringing a tablet in and it can get part of the IEP because assistive technology is part of the IEP under communication.
0: Terrific. All right. Well, we have a parent who has expressed some frustration. She's been trying to work with the education team and doesn't feel that her child is getting the accommodations that she really needs. She wants to know when a parent um, should know or should realize that it's time to find an out, an outside advocate perhaps like yourself or perhaps one from one of the parent training centers to assist in the process. When do you call for backup?
1: I love that expression calling for backup. That That was a great way to put it. So typically we our group gets phone calls from parents either when they're in like a crisis their child is in a crisis mode at the school when they're just beginning the process and need help navigating the the entire continuum or when they've just been feel like they're deadlocked with the school that the school is not seeing what they're seeing or the school is saying that they are doing x y and z but the parent does not believe that's happening so as an educational consultant what we do is we provide objective expert opinions. So while we agree with the parents, typically the majority of the time, or 95% of the time, because there is something about a parent's gut instinct, there are times where we see that something is happening. And then when we see that, we're able to communicate that back to the parent, which which provides them a certain level of comfort. But part of what we do as consultants is go in and do a classroom observation. And we find out a lot of great information that way to determine if accommodations are are being used, et cetera. There is not one teacher that can implement every single accommodation for every lesson because some accommodations are uh, content-specific or setting-specific. So that's the role of the consultant. If there is a legal concern that you have, if it's a compliance issue, or did your child not qualify for extended school year, those the beginning pieces is the consultant can help you with it. But an excellent consultant will know when to tell you to call in the attorney. And there is a line that the consultant can take you to. And then past that, if there are other legal avenues or dispute resolution options you want to pursue, that's when the attorney would get involved.
0: Thank you. Well, we've got another question, and I think we're getting close to our time, but we've got another question where one of our participants wants to really know what is the advantage of having a 504 or an IEP one over the other. Is there a program that is better? Often at the National Resource Center we get a call. Which one is the best? Is one better than the other? Is one more powerful, more uh, useful? How can a parent really know which one should I ask for?
1: So that is an excellent question, and I'm not just saying that it really is. So it depends on who you ask, and I'll tell you why. Not every child needs an IAP, and not every child needs a 504. So you really have to know what your child needs, and it comes down to this. What does the IAP provide that The 504 does not. And the answer is this, direct specialized instruction where there are outlined goals for your child to meet, predicted to meet within one year in specific areas of need. And that does not mean academic. That does not just mean if they're reading one or two years below grade level or they're not able to, um, they, they can do math calculation, but they need to work on problem solving. That's also conversational skills. That's also pragmatics, expressive and receptive language. Um, And when your school or state or county says, well, they're on grade level, they don't need an IEP, therefore we're giving them a 504, remind your district of the Andrew F. decision, which was the last decision uh, that the Supreme Court passed before the summer, which shows that you can't expect the minimal progress from students and that then that will open up an entire discussion about the difference between ability and achievement. So I will let you know that I have plenty of families that I feel like a 504 plan is enough for that child, and I have as many families that they need that the IEP. With an IEP, you get direct special education hours, but that does not necessarily mean that those hours are provided by a special educator, because that's also important to know. Oh, one more thing. (laughs) This is an important part of that. I'm so sorry. With the 504 plan, that falls under the ADA. With an IEP, that falls under the IDEA. So they're very different. One is a special education law.
0: One is special education law and the other, I believe, is civil rights law from 1972? From
1: yes, the ADA is the Americans with Disability Act.
0: All right. Well, I think that has brought us to the end of our webinar this, this afternoon. So, Jennifer, is there anything you would like to add before we
1: move towards our end? I want to thank everybody for taking an hour out of the middle of their day to, to listen to this webinar. I love working with families, and to me, the more information parents have, the better, the more empowered you are. I always encourage working collaboratively with the school, and yes, sometimes consultants need to come in and make that happen, If especially if it's been damaged, but you really are your children's best advocates and you know them the best. So just keep up with the great job that you're doing.
0: Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful time to visit with you and to have our participants hear from you. And I'd like to thank our participants also for taking the time to join us today.